there's something terribly unique um, about holding a, a newborn. I remember the, the first time that I held Finn in the hospital. Um, in fact, I have a, a picture, so collective awe on, on cue. Uh, yeah. Oh, geez. So many memories. You, uh, you just never are prepared. You just, you just can't, you can't be prepared. And it really is life-shattering and, and changing. Um, you hold your child, and there's these brief moments when they aren't hungry or poopy or crying or tired. And you're just like, who are you? But in the best way possible. You know, the whole world is open to you, and you could do anything and be anything, and you weren't, and now you are, and you're here, and the world won't be the same anymore, and I won't be the same anymore, and our life won't be the same anymore. I have one more photo, of course. Here's another one. Here's our family. This is this is a um, great photo um, because uh, this is 40 days, around 40 days after he was born, and uh, I love his face. He totally doesn't want to be here. Um, let's take the next one, yeah. He's just, he's not upset about it. He's just like, really, we're outside? I... You know, I was, yeah, he's, he's not super happy. I show this photo not just because um, I'm, I'm thinking every Christmas about birth but, and what it was like to have a, a child, but, but because I want a little bit of perspective. Um, our scripture lesson today takes place 40 days uh, after Christmas. It's not Christmas yet, and uh, yet today we're going to skip ahead, and we're going to look at G- the story after Jesus' birth. It's a story that took place around 40 days after Jesus was born, so Jesus would have been about this big, still very new, still an infant, um, and maybe at times uninterested and hungry and stinky, I'm sure. But we're currently in this series of Advent where we're looking at um, various songs proclaimed in the Christmas story according to Luke. And first we looked at Mary's song and her, how she envisioned this world, a world where the poor would be lifted up and the wealthy would be brought down, a world where there would be equality and justice, a very rebellious song. And then we looked at Zachariah's song, and he talked all about how John the Baptist was going to prepare the way and how preparing the way for Jesus meant repenting what it means to change the way we think and the way that we live, repenting, repairing the way. And then, and then last week, our friend Baron looked at the angel song and really spent time looking at uh, the two different kinds of responses that people had in the Christmas story. First, the shepherds, um, as, and then those who were in power, and specifically Herod, and how he responded with insecurity and with violence. Today, we're going to look at a song proclaimed by this old man named Simeon. And here's how it happens. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go there. I won't have it on the screen uh, today, so my apologies if that's something you find meaningful. Uh, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, so you can follow along. Just Google it. If you don't have a, a Bible app, you can just Google Luke cho- chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start at verse 22, so you do have to scroll a little bit. Um, and uh, we're going to Luke 2, chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 22. Before we do that, let's, um, let's pray. God, as we... Um, open up uh, your word, and as um, we read about the story of Simeon and uh, dedication of Jesus, Mary, we just ask that your word would speak to us, that God, regardless of what I say or don't say or mess up saying or say correctly or profoundly or interestingly or not interestingly at all, regardless of what I say, Lord, just we lay this time aside to you. We ask that you would use it 
that you would lay on people's hearts what it is they need to hear, and that you would speak to us in this moment, that we might be all the more prepared to celebrate what Christmas is all about. We give you all the praise and the glory. Amen. Luke 2, 22 says this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, he'd already been born at this point, took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so there's two Old Testament laws that are, that are in place right now that, that are impacting the Christmas story. Two things that are happening that need to happen according to the Old Testament because Mary had baby Jesus. So she gave birth to a son, and two things need to happen. First, women, after giving birth in, in the Old Testament law, had to, uh, were considered ceremonially unclean. If they gave birth to a boy, it was for 40 days. If they gave birth to a, a girl, it was for 60 days. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, we could spend some time talking through the patriarchy of Old Testament society and a variety of other things. But, but one of the ways that, that I like to look at this that I think is actually makes a lot more sense after um, I watched Alyssa have our child is 40 days, you're ceremonially unclean, which means you're not interacting with people, you're not participating in the religious life, you're basically staying at home. It's, in some ways, primitive maternity leave is what it is. I mean, you are expected to just rest and to recover. So for 40 days, um, they, women uh, were kind of left to themselves. And so um, after 40 days, though, you would present yourself to the temple. So the first real public appearance um, is at the Lord's house, which I'm sure not for everyone, but for many people, that would be kind of a beautiful moment in the birth of a child. So that's one of the things that's happening here. Forty days after Christmas, Mary goes to the temple to perform her purification rites after having a child. The other thing is related to the fact that they had a firstborn son. Because you would present your firstborn son, especially if it was a firstborn son, um, to the Lord. And they do this for, for, for a couple of reasons. First, in a culture that was built on firstborn sons. I mean, firstborn sons, even in the Old Testament, they got special treatment. They got extra portions. I mean, firstborn sons was a big deal. So in a culture where firstborn sons were a big deal, um, this was a way in which God would uh, require you to basically hand over your most precious possession. And it was because of this, the, the, the preeminence of firstborn sons, that, um, uh, that it became central to the Israelites' redemption, redemption story. Because central to the Jewish faith is a story called the Exodus. Uh, there's a lot of renditions out there um, where you can watch or read about the Exodus. But part of the Exodus story is the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God is going to let his people go. And he has to convince Pharaoh. And so he convinces Pharaoh with violence. He sends plagues. He turns water to blood. He sends frogs and locusts and all these sorts of things. And it doesn't convince Pharaoh. None of it's bad enough to convince Pharaoh until the very end where he does the last one, which is he's going to take the life of every firstborn son in a society, in a primitive culture where firstborn sons were everything. And, and so he's going to let the angel of death, death loose. 
And the angel of death is going to roam around Egypt, and the angel of death is going to snatch up the life of every firstborn son. But the angel of death isn't allowed to go into the houses that were marked with blood from the lamb on the, on the doorpost. So the Israelites were told this ahead of time. They were let in on this little secret. And they, so they would all, they, that night, they, they slaughtered a lamb, and they would take the blood, and they would put it over the doorpost, and then the angel of death would pass them by. It's actually a pretty epic story, pretty brutal story. But as a way to remember this story, the Exodus, and other stories like it, stories like Abraham and Isaac, another firstborn son story where he was about to lose him, they would do this rule. And it was, it was a pretty simple rule. You would give your firstborn son to God. He spared the firstborn son of the Israelites back in the Exodus, so he's not yours anymore anyways. So you gave every firstborn son over to the Lord. And this is the principle in most of the Old Testament. You, you gave the first of everything. You gave your firstborn son. You gave first 10% of your crops. You gave the firstborn of your cattle. Like, this was just the Old Testament rule. People complain nowadays about tithing and giving a little bit of your money. Like, in the Old Testament, no. Whatever was first that you got, firstborn son, first crops, first cattle, whatever, it belonged to the Lord. Numbers 8, 17 says it like this. Every firstborn male in Israel, whether human or animal, is mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set them apart for myself. So every one of your first, your crops, your cattle, your children, were gods by principle. Think about that for a second, especially if you're a parent in the room, how radical that is. It wasn't as bad as it sounded, though, because you didn't have to actually give your son over to God as some sort of um, human sacrifice. In fact, that's a big part of the Abraham and Isaac story, if you're familiar with that story, was for God changing the status quo. At this time, that's what you did. You gave your firstborn to the gods, and you would sacrifice them on an altar. And Isaac and Abraham, the story is like, no, 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 God's like, I'm not going to do that. That's what you expected would be required. That's why you didn't argue with him, but I'm not going to do that anymore. We're going to do it a little differently. So you would still give your firstborn, but, but one of two things would happen. Either one, you would give them to the Lord in the sense that they would be raised in the temple. So you'd leave your firstborn son in the temple to be raised. Eventually, this was replaced with the Levites, but until that happened, you would raise your son in the temple. This is what happened with, uh, with the story of Samuel, if you read that in the Old Testament. Th- that was one option. The other option is you would either leave your son in the temple to be raised in the temple and to serve God their entire life, or you could buy your son back. Your son wasn't yours. Firstborn son wasn't yours. Belonged to God. Does it just happen when he was born? But you could buy him back from God. The, the word here is redeem. You could redeem your son. Um, Numbers uh, eighteen fifteen says it like this. The first offspring of every womb, both human and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver. So let me explain. Basically, every firstborn, male, female, of any animal, of any human, belonged to God. But you got to keep them all except for the son because of the whole Exodus story. You didn't get to keep the son. But you could buy the son back for silver. So your first son belongs to God, and you buy them back. God has them go through this process. Think about this. This religious, it's not really a part of our faith anymore. We don't, we don't, we don't require your firstborn anymore, friends, so you're welcome. But, but imagine if we did. 
Your firstborn, I have, my firstborn happens to be a son. They belong to God the moment they're born. You present them at 40 days. And then you kind of live through this religious ceremony where you lose them, but then you have to give something, of you, something else, something that's of value to get them back. Why would God have us do that if not not us per se, but why would he have the Israelites do that if not to experience what God would ultimately experience? We are like the firstborn of God, and we have been sold from the moment we were born to darkness and evil, and we don't belong to God anymore, and God would have to sacrifice more than silver to redeem us, to buy us back. And so every Israelite parent would know what that felt like in the smallest of ways. Well, not in a very small way, in a very profound way. And included every parent, even the parents who couldn't afford to buy their kids with silver. So in the Old Testament, obviously, uh, it has a, a propensity to care for the poor and to make room for people in the margins. And so if you couldn't afford to buy your son back with silver, you could buy them back with something that you could afford. And so later in the law, they allowed you to buy peop- your, your son back with two doves or two young pigeons. And if you were paying attention to the Christmas story where we just read out of Luke, that's what happens. Mary and Joseph, they use two uh, doves or two young young pigeons to buy Jesus back. They present Jesus to the temple at 40 days and they buy Jesus back, which is another way of saying they, they're, they're the type of family that reduced lunches. It tells us a lot about who Mary and Joseph are. They can't afford silver. They can't afford, they can't afford a lot of things. They're, they're buying their son back with two doves, which would have been very, very affordable. So Mary and Joseph take little one-month-old Jesus to the temple and they give him to the Lord. And then with two doves, they buy him back because they do that so they can raise him on their own and not leave him at the temple to be raised in a life of service to God. But imagine the irony. They bring Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who was born so that we might live, one who would give his entire life to serving God and then die for us as a sacrifice whose blood would be spread above our doors, And they take him to the temple, and they buy him back. Ironic, because he would truly and perfectly give himself to God, the firstborn of creation, given as a sacrifice, not symbolically or even metaphorically or even religiously, but literally in a brutal and painful way at the hands of the world's most violent. And Luke doesn't hold back on this irony. In just a couple of verses later, he tells the story of Mary and Joseph who are traveling. Um, later, Jesus, it's one of the only stories we get of Jesus when he's younger, and Jesus turns 12. Um, I was 12 once. We have probably some families with 12-year-olds. They're special, aren't they? I was special as a 12-year-old. Jesus is 12, and uh, they're traveling. They had gone back to Jerusalem by the time Jesus was 12, and they had gone to this festival, and then they're headed back home because they lived up north, and they're heading back home. They're heading with a whole caravan of people. Everyone would go down. It was this, you know, they were carpooling before there were cars, and so everyone's traveling together, and they just assume that Jesus is wandering with some of the other relatives and friends and neighbors, and they lose track of Jesus. They don't know where Jesus is. They lost, Mary and Joseph lost the Savior of the world in a crowd walking along the road. And so they, they freak out, and they, they go back to Jerusalem. They look for him, and they find him where? At the temple. And Mary says in Luke 2, 48, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you, which is how we still talk to 12-year-olds. 
And look at Jesus' response. He says, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And at that point, he's not like any 12-year-old I know. He says, didn't you know that I had to be at my father's house? In other words, parents, you dedicated my life at the temple, and you bought me back. You redeemed me so I could live with you but, and live a normal life, but I'm not going to live a normal life. You should have just left me at the temple. That was my destiny. Jesus' story starts with Mary and Joseph redeeming him, redeeming their firstborn son. And Jesus' story ends with God using his firstborn son to redeem the world. It, it starts in a temple where his life is dedicated to God, and it ends near a temple where the temple curtains are torn, where his life is offered as a sacrifice, buying us all back. And it's in this first temple, when Jesus is dedicated, that we meet Simeon. And he uh, hear his song. So let's pick the story back up. Luke 2, 25, if you're following along. He says this, Now there was this man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law, when they're going to dedicate him, um, uh, this is what happened. This guy, he, he, he had spent his whole life waiting for the day God would send the Messiah and, and God would make all things right. This, the, the Old Testament often talked to, people, uh, talked to people who were like watchmen, not the show, but, but like watchmen on a tower, on a, on a wall, and they would, they would be watching the fields and, the, and the, the horizon and they would be waiting maybe for the king to come home and so it could be a good thing or they'd be waiting for enemies and their job was to watch and to look and if they saw something, go tell everyone else, make an announcement. The Old Testament prophets talked to the people of Israel as watchmen waiting for God to do something. Isaiah 62, 6 says it like this, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. They keep telling us what they're seeing. They keep talking about what's coming. Jeremiah 6, 17 says, I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. This is one of the problems of Israel, one of the problems we have. There were these watchmen. They could see what was coming before other people could see it because of their vantage point. They're up high. They're on the, the border. And metaphorically, they could see what was coming. Maybe they're prophetic, whatever. And they would tell people what's coming and what's going to happen. And the people wouldn't listen. He said, I will set for you people who will watch and wait for what I'm going to do next. If you're not sure what God is up to and you're not sure what's going to happen next, find yourself someone who has that gift. They'll help you see. But you better listen to them. For they will see what's coming before anyone else. Simeon was a watchman. And he, he felt in his spirit God say, I'm going to, you just keep watching and you just keep waiting. And don't give up until you see what you've been waiting for. And he waited for the Messiah to be born. And one day he could sense, and somehow he would, before anyone else, he, he went, wandered to the temple. He didn't work in the temple. He maybe didn't always go there, but he goes to the temple to see what's happening. And then he meets Mary and Joseph. And Luke 28, 22, 28, uh, Luke 2, 28, he says, Simon took him in the arms. I'm hoping only after asking Mary's permission. We don't have that context, but hopefully. And he takes Jesus, and it's like this, you know, Simba, Lion King moment. And he holds him, and he looks at Mary. You know, you can almost imagine, he's like, Mary, did you know? 
that this little baby would save our sons and daughters. And Mary's like, yeah, I know. I got an angel before. Anyone else got one? I'm 100% aware of what's happening here. The side note, the song, Mary, did you know, is the best Christmas version of what we call mansplaining. And now for the ladies in the room who don't know what mansplaining is, <laughs> I stole most of those jokes from somebody. Simon, he's holding Jesus. And it's here that he gives us another glimpse into what's coming. He, 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 this life that could be anything. New and fragile. and He's a watchman. He's waiting. He's watching. And here's what he sees coming on the horizon. Luke 2, 29 to 30 says, Sovereign, this is his song, his psalm. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He says, I'm ready to die. This is the last thing I've been waiting for. We almost get this picture. We're not for sure, but we get this idea that he's older, that he's been waiting his whole life, and now he's just like, I'm ready. This is the thing I've been holding out. He says, you may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. God, my job as the watchman is, is done, for I've waited and now I've seen. It reminds me of Psalm 121, verse 1. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's this scene in Lord of the Rings where they're under siege and, and under attack, and they, and they don't think they're going to make it much longer. I think it's in the second, uh, the second book. Um, and, they're, and they're hoping that their help will come. And there's this point where the, the, when all seems lost, they look up to the hill and there's Gandalf, you know, he's the white and his entire army is ready to assist coming over the hills. Simon has waited until he couldn't wait anymore. And now he holds the savior of the world. Where does my help come from? And it'll come from you. I have seen my salvation. It's here. And all he had to do was wait for it. All of his life, and it took all of his life, potentially, but it was just a matter of waiting. I hope you'll hear this. The majority of the biblical story isn't people working and striving and doing more and more to make things happen. The majority of the biblical story is them waiting, just waiting. waiting for God to show up. I don't know who needs to hear that today, but the majority of the biblical story is people just waiting, being faithful where they're at, being faithful while they wait, not taking their eyes off of the hill from where their help, their help might come from, not, lo- not leaving their post, but waiting and watching with anticipation. Simon, he waited not passively, but actively waiting and watching, keeping his eyes on that horizon. I was really challenged this week by a by, an, uh, by this story that uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, posted. I went to college with her. We haven't talked much since, but that's the beauty of Facebook. And uh, she shared this story about uh, how God really challenged her to stop trying to hustle so much. This, we live in a culture that loves to hustle. You know what I mean by that? You know, we just, you got to work harder. You got to do more. There's more things on the checklist, and you just got to keep trying until you win. And there's a lot of pressure. I feel a lot of pressure to hustle, and I'm sure you do too. And she was sharing this story, and I'm just going to read it to you, and hopefully there's someone here who needs to hear it. Um, she, says, she says this. Her name is Amanda. 
Amanda says, in the fall of 2018, I remember watching Fixer Upper for the first time. Any, anyone seen Fixer Upper? You know, the jo- Chip and Joanne, they, they became kind of celebrities. If you haven't seen it, it's a good show. He says, she says, I remember in 2018 watching it for the first time. And I remember thinking how in that first season, Joanna was around 35 years old. That's the main character in the show. And she had no idea how much her life was about to change. She had no idea that her 35th year was the start of a most incredible journey. She had no idea that one season would lead to four of the television show, which would lead to a deal with Target and a television network and books and magazines. She had no idea that the storefront business that she had to close down to spend more time with her family would one day reopen bigger and better than before. She had no idea that at 35, things were just getting started. This struck me in an incredible way, Amanda says. At that time, I was about to turn 35. I had a newborn and a one-year-old at home, and I had just lost $25,000 in projected income for the following year. And I was struggling because I strongly felt God tell me, do not hustle. Do not try to replace that lost income. Focus on your family. Trust me, things are going to happen. So I did, she said. Instead of pitching new work and drumming up new opportunities, I maintained my existing businesses and spent time with my kids. It was one of the hardest things I've had to do as a businesswoman. Like you have no idea. I felt lazy. I felt frustrated. I had no control, no plan. But I thought thought about Joanna and, and how we have no idea what the 35th year will bring. So that fall led to winter, and they had their... Um, we had our, our, another child in late November 2019, and uh, all of that year was about to hit this budgetary glory and crisis, and I was doing my best to just be patient and to trust. And then I got a message from a potential client telling me that after over a year of talking, he was ready to work together. I turned 35 the next day, and that relationship with that client turned into the biggest book deal of my career. She's a literary agent. A few months into 2019, our finances were once again in the balance, but it didn't end there. The relationship, that relationship led to another relationship and, and another, and in 2019, the year that was supposed to be, that wasn't supposed to be that great has been my best year ever as a literary agent. And I didn't have to hustle. I just got to focus on my true passion. 35 has been great, and I turn 36 tomorrow, she says. As I reflect on everything that happened in my 35th year, and as I again try to work through this desire I have to hustle, 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 I keep thinking two things. First, trust God and what he's telling you. If he's telling you to hustle, then hustle. If he's telling you to stop, slow down, then stop. Slow down. And second, she says, you never know what the new year may bring. Whether it's 35 or poor Simeon, we don't know how long he waited for that moment where you felt like it all came together, when you finally see all the pieces connect and the bridges come together, whatever, however long it is, God will come. And when God comes and those doors open and and, and then things fall into place, you better be ready because it's going to be crazy. That much I know for sure. Then when God shows up and it doesn't happen every day, doesn't happen when we want it, but when God shows up, things will change. A little bit later, Simeon tells us what this uh, salvation, he says, I've seen my salvation. He tells us what the salvation is going to look like, and it's not what you'd think. He gives Jesus back to his mother, and then he tells Mary something, and he, he's, he says, I'm a watchman. Here's what other, I'm going to tell you what others can't see. And he's, he's excited as he is about the salvation. He knows that it's not going to come cheap. 
He leans into Mary and he tells her this. It's Luke chapter 2, verse 34 to 35. He says, this child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Talk about a blessing when you've just had a kid. Imagine having a child and someone says, hey, your child's going to cause quite the scene. That's what he's saying. Some are going to rise, who are often brought down low. This is Mary's language. She already knew this, right? This is what she proclaimed. Some are going to rise and others are going to fall, but no one's going to stay the same. And then he says something really personal to her. He says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary had to be someone special to be able to hear this kind of word. This salvation that Jesus would bring would disrupt everything. Mary knew this. That's what she's saying about. You know, Jesus is a lot of things, but Jesus isn't very neutral. With Jesus, there will be controversy. Some will rise. Others will fall. Some will praise him. Others will speak against him. Few will have nothing to say about him. And he says this, which is really profound. He says, how you respond to Jesus will show us who you really are. How you respond to Jesus, to his teaching, to his example, to the call on on your life, will reveal what's hidden in your heart. Even Mary would be cut to the core, like a double-edged sword, because of Jesus. She wouldn't be exempt from Jesus or the ability to disrupt. The, The salvation that Jesus brings would change everything. And it would disrupt everything. So be careful what you're asking for. It really is like having a child. Um, There's nothing that's disrupted my life more than having a child. I'm not saying it isn't good. I'm just saying I'm not the same anymore. Uh, Similar to even getting married. Getting married into a relationship, my life's not the same anymore. In in both situations, my life's not really even mine anymore. (laughs) It's not bad. It's just, it's not the same. Or even just like, Entering into a new job or beginning to live into your passion and your calling, your life will change. And parts of your life won't be yours anymore because it'll be good. It'll be maybe what you've always wanted, but it will be disruptive. It'll change. It'll change you in every way possible. I think it's a good way to think about it. Jesus is born and the watchman can see how Jesus would cause the rise and fall of many. For those who respond to Jesus with surrender will be lifted up. And those who don't will be brought down. Simon ends his song by saying this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people. He says your salvation is a light that enters into a dark world. This is a theme, a metaphor that we've sat with every week as we light candles. One candle is very ambitious, by the way. Has anyone else noticed that? It's just very serious over here. I'm not sure. Which one is that? It's some serious piece getting burned over here. But this is a metaphor. The light is a metaphor that we sit with in Christmas and throughout the year where the tiniest light, even of a candle, can break through the darkness. He says the salvation will enter in light even to the Gentiles, which includes probably most of us here, people who are outside the Jewish faith. 
There's a, there's, a, there's a traditional service. I'm not an expert on it. I, I only read a tiny little bit about it. It's called Candlemas. Has anyone been to a Candlemas uh, service? I think Catholic Church might do it. Um, maybe the Orthodox. I can't say for sure. A few of you. Um, huh? No, it's not a midnight church. No, but I, I know what you're saying. It's called Candlemas. Uh, Candlemas, like Christmas, was a, a, Chris, a Christ mass. That's... Mass was a word for worship. Well, candle mass is the, is this other word, and it happens forty days after Christmas. So I think this year is happening sometime in uh, early February, late January, and it's a service that in the early church there's some writings that suggest it was bigger than Easter. Uh, we we probably don't, I don't even I didn't even know about this service, but it's based on Simeon's song. It's based on this presenting Jesus to the temple and being brought back and, and the, the purification of Mary and all this sort of stuff. And then Simeon's song where he says that this light is entering the world for all the Gentiles. And so traditional churches going back to the first uh, century of Christianity would celebrate Candlemas uh, 40 days after Christmas. And it's this really beautiful service. It's similar to our Christmas Eve service. In fact, we're going to pull some metaphors from this service this year. But one of the things that makes it unique is instead of, um, if you've been to a candlelight Christmas Eve service, you come in, we do the whole service, and at the end, we dim the lights, and then we start passing the light around, and it fills the room. Well, candle mass works sort of like that, except for everyone starts outside. And it's dark, and it's night, and it's probably still cold. And everyone lights their candles, and the church is dark and empty. And then almost like a marching parade, they progress into the space, filling the space with light. On Tuesday, we'll do something similar. We'll be in our seats already, but our Christ candle in the center will be in the back, and it'll be lit when the room is dark, and it'll be brought into the space. Jesus was brought into this world to bring light, to overcome the darkness, to push it back, it's disruptive. It'll change us. And I hope it changes you. I'm going to invite the band to come up and uh, I invite you to, to pray with me. God, I ask that you would show us today where our darkness is. Those things in our life that have been hidden. Those things in our life that we don't want to talk to anyone about, that we're scared of, that we're holding back. That your light would come and enter us and illuminate and show us and convict us or comfort us and change us. Dare I say, Lord, come and disrupt our lives. If we need brought low, bring us low. If we need lifted up, lift us up. You alone know. So Holy Spirit, come. And all of God's people said, amen. Will you please stand?